This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Sacrifice. To some, it is just a word. To others, it is a code. A soldier knows that the life of an individual ant doesn't matter. What matters is the colony. He's willing to live for the colony, to fight for the colony, to die for the colony. My mother never had time for me. You know, when, you, when you're the middle child in a family of five million, you don't get any attention. I mean, how's it possible? Stop! I order you to stop, worker! Hey! I got a name, okay? It's Z. And out here, you can't order me around. Those hierarchies of, of one individual being dominant over another, they're in a constant state of flux. And if you're the dominant individual, you are constantly being challenged. You are constantly being tested. It's a very stressful environment. You can't understand until you go there and see it for yourself. You can be your own ant there. Nobody telling you what to do. No wars. No colony. They have these huge nests underground with hundreds of sort of head-sized chambers dug into the soil. A single ant has no chance of doing that. It would be like us deciding that we're going to go make a city. Well, great, but where's the other 25,000 people that are going to help you? Listen, we got to help each other get out of here before we all drown. How? By making a ladder. a ladder. Hey, if we built this, we can do anything. Whoever heard of two ants? Two million ants, maybe. Two. Hello and welcome to Science Dish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by the thinking man's Brian Cox, Michael Brooks. Hello, I'll take that. That's very kind of you. Yeah, did you see Brian Cox in the, um, I think it was on the front cover of the Scotsman magazine this weekend? I did not. It's a real treat. He's wearing a cropped leather biker jacket, revealing a huge belt buckle uh, <laughs> and a pair of, uh, sort of this. sheen effect uh, boot cut black jeans over what looked like school shoes. Oh! And he's doing a sort of pose that effectively says, oh, What do you think, guys? What do you think? And I'm and what, telling you, what do you think? What I think. I think you're a very naughty boy, Brian. <laughs> and I know that you wouldn't wear a clobber that naughty. No, I wouldn't. Um, I mean, um, yeah, I've been known to wear a few things in my time, but nothing like that. The Lonsdales from Sports lo- Direct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll never obviously live that down. I'm going to bring us back on track now, Rick. We've got a, a film to discuss. It's your turn this week. What yes. are we looking at? Yeah, so this episode is the second in our trilogy of episodes uh, right. based on animated films. Uh, and this week, we're looking at the 1998 classic, Ants with a Z. Uh, did you watch it? Yeah, I did. I, I watched it at the time. I don't think I went to the cinema. It was probably like 98. That was like VHS, wasn't it? I thought that I'd definitely seen it, but I... Th- was thinking of a bug's life. See, now you've mentioned that, I'm starting to doubt whether yeah, I've whether seen, seen it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've definitely just... seen a bug's life. 
Yeah, I've definitely seen A Bug's Life, and I realised when I watched Ants that I hadn't seen Ants oh, before. Oh, okay. It's good, though. All it's right. funny. Um, it's got Woody Allen in as the main ant. Right. Do you remember that? No, no. No, okay. I think you've seen A Bug's Life then. <laughs> yeah, I don't. So you've got this uh, ant played by Woody Allen, and he's like a restless worker who sort of dreams of, you know, breaking out and not conforming with the ant hierarchy. He falls in love with a princess ant. Obviously, he's not good enough for her. Uh, there's all there's like a war with some termites. There's a bad <laughs> ant who's trying to overthrow the queen. But in the end, Woody Allen ant and the princess ant, who I think is Sharon Stone, right? they uh, end up together and they start a new colony where everyone's interests are, are looked after. It's interesting because it it suggests that the ant hierarchy is a bad thing that that should be broken out of. Do I do I smell our big question? Yes, you do. Our big question is: Does nature prefer hierarchy? Good question. It's a good one, actually, isn't it? So, who's taking that on for us? Well, we've got an absolute don. None other than Adam Hart. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, the Adam Hart. The Adam Hart. Love Adam Hart. Yeah. Uh, entomologist and professor of science communication at the University of Gloucestershire. He's been studying ants for 20 years. So his particular ants are leaf-cutting ants. Oh, yeah. The ones you get in Central and yeah. South America. Yeah. And they live in huge, huge colonies. So you've got millions and millions of ants. In nature, when we talk about hierarchies, we're usually talking about one organism or one individual having sort of dominion, if you like, over another. And that might be in terms of access to food. It might be in terms of access to mates. If you imagine you've got sort of almost like a continuum, like a a ramp from very solitary animals like leopards, say, that, that really only come together to mate... And then you get animals that herd, like uh, deer, for example, and then you get animals that form sort of tighter groups. So you might get kind of little breeding groups of birds where they might help their sort of mum and dad at the nest, and you see that pattern quite a lot in birds, and that's getting a little more social. But when you get to things like ants, you really cross that divide. You suddenly get this fantastic hierarchy that's absolutely rigid. You have lots and lots of worker ants, and they are going around doing all the kinds of jobs feeding the colony, collecting food, defending the colony and and everything else. But in the centre of the nest somewhere you have the queen and it's the queen ant that does all the reproduction and that's really the key thing about an ant hierarchy. The queen is doing the reproduction and the workers are doing all the work. It's set almost in a sort of evolutionary stone that you end up with this queen that is, is morphologically, so she looks different, she's chemically different from all these workers. The species I look at, leaf-cutting ants, the, the queen ant's massive. She's ten times longer, ten times wider, ten times higher. She's like a thousand times bigger than some of the smaller ants in the colony. She is a huge unit that's only there to lay eggs. If you think about an ant colony, all of the workers in an ant colony are kind of like the cells in our body. They're supporting the reproductive units, and the reproductive unit of an ant colony is the queen. So the queen is basically the ovaries of the colony, if you like, and the workers of the body. And, I mean, this, this has become known as the superorganism concept, the, the idea that we can think of an ant colony almost as a, a single unit. And for ants, working together collectively has enabled them to exploit niches and to, to dominate in some e- ecosystems in a way that they couldn't do if they were solitary. It's this whole gung-ho superorganism thing that, that, that I, you know, I can't get. I try, but I don't, I don't get it. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, what is it? I'm supposed to do everything for the colony. And, and what about my needs? What about me? 
There's not really very many ways that ants can step out of line because most of the time they're all working for the same thing. But there is one particular area of their biology where they can, which is to do with reproduction. So I said earlier that queen lays all the eggs. Well, that's technically not true for every species because in quite a few species of ants, and actually in honeybees and bumblebees as well, the workers retain the ability to lay eggs. They can't lay very many of them and they can't mate but they can, in some cases, lay unfertilised eggs, and that allows them to have sons because there's this weird thing in ants, bees and wasps where males develop from unfertilised eggs. So workers can have, potentially, their own offspring, and in many cases they'd like to. The problem is none of the other workers want them to have their own offspring, and the queen doesn't want any of them to reproduce. And so you can find situations where it's called policing, where um, the queen will go and eat their eggs or other workers will eat the eggs that are laid. So there's this kind of enforcement. And that can reach quite an extreme. Sometimes the queen will step in and she will mark whoever's stepping most out of line into a special chemical that's only seemingly used for this that she produces in her sting. And as soon as the lower workers smell that on that worker, they will, they will basically kill that worker. They stretch her out, they do all kinds of, of crazy things, and, and it either reduces her dominance so she never has a go again, or, or in some cases it kills her. So hierarchies, they've been around. Obviously, we've known about them a long time. Have we studied them for long? No, so there's this guy um, called, and I apologise if I get his uh, pronunciation incorrect, Torleaf uh, Shelderup Ebba, Norwegian guy. So turn of the 20th century, his parents, I think, have quite a nice country house outside Oslo, and they've got a load of chickens. And as a kid, he becomes really fixated on the chickens. He looks after them, tends to them, but also notes down their behaviour. And he realises that the chickens kind of rank themselves. So if a chicken is defeated in a, in a fight over, like a squabble over food by another chicken, it will never then try and take food off that chicken again. It knows that it ranks more lowly than that one. Yeah. And they're all aware of their relative status. So basically you have a queen chicken at the top. No one can peck that one. And then one underneath who can peck everyone except the, the one at the top and so on. So you've got this kind of linear hierarchy. Uh, we could and call that a pecking order. And that is where the, the term pecking order comes from. You know I never knew that. Yeah, it's good actually. Yeah, it? it's good. Yeah, so yeah, pecking order good. comes from hens pecking each other. So this is, yeah, like I say, turn of the 20th century and people have then built upon that. So uh, hierarchies obviously are there in nature and there's presumably different theories out there as to what makes them arise, you know, what's driving them. Yeah, so they're almost ubiquitous across biological networks. So, you know, neural networks, metabolic networks, networks of individuals in a group. In human-made systems as well, we use hierarchies. So in, in like the internet, large organizations like corporations, yeah. hierarchy. Like you, you see hierarchy crop up almost everywhere. And it's, it's kind of a, a quite a tricky question to work out why, why that is. And one idea is that it's to do with the cost of network connections. So the more the more network connections you have, the greater the cost is, to, you know, and whatever form that cost takes within within the system. And hierarchies reduce that cost. And so if you do computer modelling of big groups and you have no connection cost, you don't see the emergence of hierarchy. But if you do include connection cost, you do see the emergence of oh, hierarchy. That's interesting. And, and it seems like it's a fairly ubiquitous organising principle. So like if you have a military, then yeah. you, you have hierarchy because it's actually more efficient to have a hierarchy. Exactly right. The same thing applies to whether you're looking at the organisation of the military or the way that you want to organise a circuit board. 
all about increasing efficiency, reducing overall cost. Yeah. And, and you do that by reducing the number of network connections, which hierarchy allows you to do. Yeah. Uh, okay. And it's sort of, it's been feeding into the kind of nature versus nurture kind of debate about how we are as well, isn't it? Yeah. So you probably heard in the last year or so, um, Jordan Peterson, the uh, psychology professor and um, agitator, I suppose <laughs> you would describe him as, wouldn't yeah. you? And he's been talking about hierarchies being natural to some extent, which I wouldn't disagree with. However, his example is lobsters. So he's like, look at the way that lobsters organize themselves in a hierarchy, which they do. And he says, because we share a common evolutionary ancestor with lobsters, it's no surprise then that humans have very similar Oh, that's a specious argument. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's sort of <laughs> because we share common ancestors. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the common the... ancestors three hundred and fifty million <laughs> years ago. Um, there isn't there is an interesting thing, which is that lobsters also have you know serotonin, and we have serotonin. Right. Serotonin levels correspond to the levels of aggression and uh, you, the position of the lobster within a hierarchy. So, right. more serotonin means more aggressive behaviour means you're more likely to be a dominant lobster, and peterson's thing is so that's basically the same in humans right well Um, i I believe that more if he made the argument from chimps yeah but he's not and you have to bear in mind that serotonin affects us in a totally different way so if you have a lower level of serotonin in a lobster then you'll have decreased levels of aggression whereas the exact opposite is true in in humans just because it's much and the way that serotonin is is interacting with our biological systems is so different to the way it's interacting with lobsters because we have a brain. Like, lobsters don't really yeah, have a yeah. brain. Yeah. And so we've got all these different brain centers that are being influenced by serotonin and the way that they communicate with each other. And it's, it's very, obviously, it's very complicated versus a lobster, which is quite a simple creature, yeah. <laughs> ultimately. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a very poor analogy and it's surprising how much traction it's got. Um, <laughs> although if you well, do even cursory research you'll see that it is, it's nonsense. Yeah. But you could also, you could make the point about hierarchies without using lobsters. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just so it's, surreal. It's very, it's very odd. So whether Peterson's right or wrong, obviously he's wrong, it's still true, isn't it, that hierarchies are kind of inevitable when you look at nature. I don't know about inevitable. You see it a lot. You, you, you do. Yeah. Um, and the, there's, there's various purposes that social hierarchies perform. One of the main ones is in theory, you reduce the amount of fighting within the group. Certainly if you have a stable hierarchy, you will. You have to understand your own status uh, relative to others in a hierarchy. And if you want to manoeuvre yourself within that, you need to, generally speaking, use sort of cunning, deception, strategic thinking. And it's all like very Machiavellian. They've done structural and functional imaging of macaque brains. So these are monkey brains. You can see... There are neural change, actual neural changes associated with status. So in, in brain centers like the, the amygdala, you can see that there is a delineation of neural circuits that allows us to navigate our social world. So our brain will change in order to allow us to navigate the social hierarchy, which is quite a powerful thing. Right, yeah. So you've been rewired effectively by the social standing and the hierarchies. And, yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. Yeah, because of because of plasticity within your brain, yeah. obviously, it's, it's yeah. always being, uh, you know, rewired. So it kind of change who you are in, yes, in a- some a- respects. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. But it's also a kind of driver for success, this whole thing. 
The beauty of natural selection and evolution is that it's created amazing solutions to, to problems. And in some of those cases, some of the problems are best solved by animals working together in, in family units, for example. So in the case of ants, which have sort of taken this to an extreme, the smallest ant colonies have about five individuals. The largest, 25 million. What you have there is a sort of mutually agreeable hierarchy where the workers get lots of genetic benefits out of the colony set up, the queen gets benefits out of it and they're all more or less on the same page because their hierarchy is to all of their mutual benefit it's about exploiting the resources collectively, whereas other hierarchies are generally about making sure that you get more than the other so, for instance, if we take my, my favourite ants, the leaf-cutting ants, they have these huge nests underground with hundreds of sort of head-sized chambers dug into the soil. And in those chambers, they are growing a fungus which they farm for food. A single ant has no chance of doing that. It would be like us deciding that we're going to go and make a city. Well, great, but where's the other 25,000 people that are going to help you? It's not about you. It's about us. The team. It's about this. Uh, a giant hole in the ground? Come on, Z. Help us build a bigger, better colony. And for crying out loud, try to be happy about it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So one of the most interesting animals is the naked mole rat. Now, naked mole rats are pretty disgusting. They were described to me as looking like penises with teeth. It's not a bad description. They are odd-looking creatures for sure, but they've got the most incredibly interesting biology because they live like ants. There is a queen naked mole rat and also a king, and they produce the offspring, and the offspring become workers, and those workers dig this massive tunnel system in the hard-baked concrete-like soil of, of East Africa. And it's an incredible way of life. It's completely impossible to do on your own because what they're doing is they're, they're building this tunnel system under the ground, sometimes for four or five kilometers. And every so often, these tunnel systems will blunder upon the tuber of some massive desert plant that provides enough food for that colony to live for, for months, potentially. Now, these are so rare and so patchy that one individual mole rat just simply couldn't build enough tunnel to ever realistically have a chance. But collectively, they can live together underground and they can build enough tunnel for them to do it. So they can only really function in that environment as a colony by living together in these tight family groups where actually any one of them is doing the reproduction and the rest of them are doing all the working. They're able to do it even more efficiently. And so they've gone towards the biology of, of an ant. If you take a naked mole rat colony and you take a queenless ant colony and you read about them and just transpose the word ant and mole rat, there is no difference between the two of them. I am learning a lot. I had no idea. That's uh, very cool. About the naked mole rat hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Also worth, if you haven't seen a naked mole rat, Adam's description of uh, penises with teeth is very good, but it is worth just having a quick uh, image search. Yes. They are extraordinary looking little fellas. They'd look good in leather though, wouldn't they? Oh, they'd look so good and some boot cuts. Yeah. <laughs> and, and did someone say school shoes? <laughs> So, they, I mean, they're really cooperative. And, and yet so many other animals 
you know, they are very hierarchical, very kind of, you know, brutal. I mean, chimps are aggro little bastards. Yeah, yeah. Famously. And there's very sort of Shakespearean stuff, actually. There was two chimps that were studied in, in Tanzania. Brothers, uh, one called Freud and one called Frodo. And Freud was the dominant chimp, the the alpha male, for a long time. And his approach was very sort of very friendly, really. So he'd he'd groom other chimps to to win favour. And effectively, you feel like he was a popular leader. Yeah. And when he got weak, Frodo took over. And Frodo, from from when he was a kid, was proper aggro. <laughs> and so he'd just be <laughs> chucking stones at chimps. He'd just like really just like oh, bite them all. Like yeah. he's like, he's horrible. Yeah. Um. And Freud, weakened, was just allowed to integrate back into the group as a lower-ranking male and was basically left alone. Everyone was quite happy with that. Yeah. Like, he'd been a sort of benevolent leader and everyone let him yeah. settle down. Frodo, this, like, nasty sort of tyrannical despot. Yeah. Just sort of reign of terror. And eventually, when he got weak, everyone was like, right, you're going <laughs> to get it now. And he got attacked exiled oh. from the group, eventually yeah. came back, but was very, very low-ranking. Like every, Effectively, everyone hated him. Yeah. And then when he when he died, they think he probably died from being attacked because they found, like, teeth marks in his testicles. Everyone had a yeah. go, didn't they? So they're just like, right. Yeah. Um, but then there's some more, also within monkeys, they do a thing called scapegoating, which is really nasty as well. But you basically, you just pick on one monkey, um, like the lowest monkey. And you just, the whole group just gang up on them. Oh. And it's sort of like a bonding exercise for everyone else. Everyone's oh. like, yeah, we're together. That's like playground bullying. Yeah, old it? school playground bullying where you just like attack the weak one and you keep doing it. And even, like, it gives you a common enemy. So everyone's, everyone else feels quite yeah. happy while this one's having a miserable life. Oh, that's horrible. And if that one dies or leaves or whatever, they just, like, they just pick someone up. else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, there's not, it's not like it ends. <laughs> and, and they think that that, that sort of behavior, like almost, Almost like blaming a minority. You you see politicians do it. Yeah. Like it's a kind of classic tactic where you're yeah. like, what about this small, weak group here? Yeah. It's probably their fault. Let's all attack oh, them. Oh, this is horrible, isn't it? It's really horrible. It feels very yeah. topical. It does feel very topical. But it's worth saying that that doesn't mean, just because you see these aggressive hierarchies in, in chimps, that it's inevitable in humans, because you look at bonobos that are just as closely related to us, and, you know, they're often dubbed like the hippie ape, because yeah. they're they're really quite peaceful. They just get on. Very little violence. They get on fine. Nice, stable hierarchies. In studied groups, there's maybe one suspicious death. And you compare that to chimps, where there's like 150. <laughs> um, suspicious death. Yeah. So, you know, th- th- it's not an inevitability by any means. So we don't have to be nasty to each other. We don't have to be bullies. We don't have to pick on the weakest. No. But your your position within a hierarchy does affect your your health as well. So there's this really big study done by a guy called uh, Michael Marmot, the Whitehall study, been running since uh, 1967, and it looked at, it was like 28,000 civil servants working in the British government. These are a group of people who are interested because they're not massively rich, they're not massively poor, they're all sort of fine. They all have the same access to healthcare. They all pretty much have jobs for life. They don't really have the worry of, of losing their jobs. Like when you're in that kind of thing, it's pretty secure and you, yeah. and you might like slowly progress up. And you have a very clear hierarchy. So you have the kind of powerful sort of administrators at the top and then you have your, you know, professionals and kind of like almost like staff scientists. Uh, and then you have uh, sort of clerical officers and then right down the bottom you have, you know, support staff effectively so porters and messengers and security people whatever and this guy looked at health outcomes and he found 
that between the ages of 40 and 64, workers at the bottom had a mortality rate that was four times greater than those at the top. Whoa. Four times greater. <laughs> and you have much more negative stress at the bottom, which is, I thought, initially kind of counterintuitive. You'd think that yeah, if you're at the yeah. bottom, you don't have responsibility or you don't have as much responsibility, like you're not having to run huge teams of people. Like It feels like it would be more stressful at the top. But there's a thing called the um, demand control model of stress, which says that if you have a high degree of control over your work, it's less stressful because yeah, you, okay, you, can, you have agency. Yeah. Whereas at the bottom, if, you, if you're feeling stressed about your work, there's really nothing you can do about You've it. Just you just got to get on with have, it. You don't really have agency. You've just got to get on with it. And so the lower down in the hierarchy you are, the less control you have and therefore the more stress. And this is really damaging your health outcomes. Hence the Woody Allen casting in Ants, I guess. Yeah, presumably, That kind yeah. of neurotic, yeah, yeah, stressed, yeah. kind yeah. of got no control over this, this is all going wrong. Yeah. That's actually how you feel when you're at the bottom. Yeah. The key thing with any hierarchy is that it's not fixed. So, yes, in an ant colony we have the queen and we have the workers. To a certain extent that is fixed, but in many species the workers have some opportunities to further their own reproductive interests if they can lay unfertilised eggs, for example. So that can cause cracks to appear. This isn't about me. I mean, look at this worker. Look what he's done. I think you're thinking of someone else. After all, I am a soldier. Exactly. You were a worker, but now you're a war hero. He's a worker. A worker dance with my fiance. In some bees, so um, some stingless bees and bumblebees, the workers can actually end up killing the queen. So in bumblebees at the end of the season, what bumblebee workers tend to do is commit regicide or, and also matricide because it's their mother too. And then they start crazily laying unfertilized eggs and they end up rearing all of the males. And that can go to an extreme. There's a, at least one species of stingless bee where virtually all of the males reared are worker laid because the queen can no longer control it. And they've gone further down. So you could argue that even in a rigid social insect kind of colony, that hierarchy can start to break down and crumble. Gentlemen, there comes a time in the evolution of a perfect colony when the strong are meant to rise above the weak. Now is that time. Below us right now, the weak elements of the colony are being washed away. Within social groups, those hierarchies of, of one individual being dominant over another, they're in a constant state of flux. And if you're the dominant individual, you are constantly being challenged. You are constantly being tested. It's a very stressful environment. I should imagine for many of these organisms, they're producing large number, amounts of testosterone in the case of, of mammals and birds, which reduces their lifespan. So, you know, all of these kind of hierarchies are fragile to that extent. All the time that there is a, an advantage to being the dominant, all the time that you're going to get more resources by lording it over other animals in your group, then there is always going to be pressure to become that dominant individual because the, the rewards are great. If the rewards aren't that great and there's plenty of food to go around and you're not fighting over mates, well, you tend to find that animals are a bit more chilled out. So lions are a good example. You've got two male lions around. They will fight very, very vigorously if there's not that many females. But if there's plenty of females or none of the females are on in estrus, so they're not in season, if you like, they're not on heat, um, there's no reason to fight. And, and the lion males won't basically fight because they're massive and they've got huge claws and teeth. And as soon as they decide to fight, someone's probably going to get very badly injured. What the hell is that? 
I think that's the weak element, sir. Give me a, give me a hand. See, you let go. Don't you understand? It's for the good of the colony. What, what are you saying? We are the colony. Cutter, what are you doing? Something I should have done a long time ago. This is for the good of the colony, sir. I think it's important to realize that the hierarchies that are happening in nature aren't necessarily imposed by nature. They're, they're more imposed by the fact that if you get groups of individuals that are different, i.e. not clonal, together, then each of them is going to be looking out for their own selfish interests. And if they can get more out of being a more dominant individual, then you will find that evolving. So I think you're always going to find these hierarchies in any situation. And, and whether or not it's, it's better for them overall, it's always better for that individual. So a group may end up functioning less well because of all this falling out, but any individuals in it are doing better if they can be the dominant individual. So you're always going to see that pressure, that, that force towards these sorts of hierarchies when you've got groups of individuals interacting. So what Adam's suggesting is that social animals are basically all innately selfish and hierarchical. I mean, is that exclusively true? Are there counterexamples to that? Yeah, and, and actually humans are maybe the best counterexample. And we, for some reason, have overlooked this. But when we were hunter-gatherers, which is for the, the vast majority of our time on Earth, so 200,000 years, we were really fiercely egalitarian. So there was sexual equality. Like, it didn't matter whether you had contributed food to the table everyone was entitled to a to an equal share and that's how we lived yeah and that's partly because the hunter-gatherer lifestyle so different like so different in 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 such crucial ways to agriculture because really if you're a hunter-gatherer you're not affected that much by by seasons because you have such a range of things you can eat and basically you just you just move around your size of your group isn't fluctuating that much you're never worried about supplies drying up. You're just sort of wandering around, getting the stuff that you need when you need it. You don't have to plan particularly. You don't have to look back particularly. You're very much living in the present. And and then when agriculture comes in, you suddenly become much more dependent on season. Like a drought could really affect you. So you start thinking, okay, I need to stockpile. So you need to have this idea that actually I can have more stuff which you never had as a hunter-gatherer there was there was no thought of that yeah and as soon as you have people saying ah i want to have more stuff then you start to produce inequality because then people have different amounts of stuff yeah yeah and there were and, and hierarchy will start to emerge and if you're settled in one place and you can start accumulating whatever it is food normally then as a man then you might be able to have like more than one wife. You suddenly have lots of children. You want to form alliances with other men and this kind of hierarchical system emerges. But it is literally only in the last 10,000 years. So hunter-gatherers, and there still are hunter-gatherer tribes out there, and they uh, have this really interesting thing called reverse dominance, so almost like a system that mitigates against hierarchy. So if a young hunter goes out and brings back a, like a really great, um, bit of meat yeah. so it goes out and catches a big old deer yeah. and comes back and is like hey look at this big old deer <laughs> everyone's like why are you like, talking like that that's shit and, and, and they literally like they, they sort of neg you they're like really? well, that, well this, that's rubbish that bit of meat because they don't like anyone kind of boasting or thinking that they're better than anyone yeah. so they keep you in check by 
by mugging you off, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's just... I like uh, that. Yeah, it's really it's good. It's what we did to Brian Cox, isn't it? It's exactly, yeah. We're just trying to keep Brian Cox in check. <laughs> He's off doing, oh, look at me in my arena tour. Front cover of magazine. <laughs> and we're like, no, Brian, we don't like that. Yeah, <laughs> we no. don't like the fact that we're, we we're significantly below you in the hierarchy. <laughs> we don't like it. <laughs> so, you know, this, this sort of sense, and again, to bring it back to Jordan Peterson, that somehow hierarchy is inevitable... Um, in in humans, it, it's just it's just nonsense. It just ignores how we yeah. lived for most of the time that we've been it. Yeah, and I, I mean, for me personally, I much prefer an egalitarian society. I'm uncomfortable with hierarchy, maybe because I've never been at the top. But you know, I sort of feel like why should other people sort of be considered better, have more resources? You know, I'm a I'm a great hater of of people who accumulate wealth, for instance. Yeah, and, and and don't spread it around. I saw some statistics recently about billionaires, and Bill Gates gives forty nine percent of his money away, basically, and all the other billionaires uh, they're like one or two percent or seven percent or you know it's like less than ten percent, and that just feels wrong. And that feels like you know we shouldn't have a society where that happens. So I, I think I'm fundamentally against that kind of hierarchy hmm. sort of sense, and I, and I'm a I'm an egalitarian. What can I say? Yeah, you're old school. I am. Really? Yeah, you, I'm like you would have been a gatherer. great hunter-gatherer. Yeah, yeah, especially when it came to mugging people off. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best bit of it, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, time for our rundown of our question, I would yeah, say. Yeah. Uh, does nature prefer hierarchy? Uh, it's actually not, quite... Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Like you, yeah. It's so um, it's so ubiquitous, hierarchies, in, 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 the, in various forms. And I think ultimately you have to say that, yes... Uh, nature does prefer hierarchy because it emerges a- almost everywhere. Right. Okay. But and it doesn't mean it's the only answer. Oh, no, no. Def- definitely not. So and we don't for, have to do a Jordan the, Peterson. No, we do not. Uh, and we're not that closely related to lobsters, just a reminder. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and in terms of the film, the sort of the, I think the point of the film is, is wrong. It's fun. It's a good, I enjoyed the film. But the ants trying to escape from their hierarchy, that is not a good thing. Like, the hierarchies within ants work extremely well yeah. for the, the the group organism, if you like. Yeah. Know your place. Yeah. If you're an ant. Science Issues, a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer-Manley, sound designed by Eli Block. Special thanks to Professor Adam Hart, if you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. It does help. And you can also find us on Twitter. That's science underscore ish. Now, I'm sure some of you remember the good old days of the podcast Medium Brow. And one of the, I would argue, premium features on that show was called Can You Milk It? Um, and as the name suggests, just um, here's a thing. Can you milk it? Uh, and we always got uh, Professor Adam Hart to answer it. And it feels remiss not to ask him the question of ants. Adam? Hello. Hello, Adam. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Uh, thank you very much for uh, doing this episode. We're very um, excited. No problem. Yeah, but obviously didn't want to let you go without asking the big question, <laughs> which is, can you milk an ant? Well, look, the uh, the simple answer is, can you get milk from an ant? No, but the more interesting answer is that ants actually produce all kinds of secretions from a whole oh, raft yes. of glands all oh. over their, their bodies which include, in the case of, of worker ants of a certain age, a secretion that they use to feed the larvae. Uh-huh. I guess you could argue it's 
basically the same as milk, right? It's a creature yes. produced to feed offspring. So I'm going I'm to say that, that, yeah, in principle, I think you could milk an ant. Yes, yes, you can milk an ant. That did sound very milky, that secretion. <laughs> Michael's delighted because he um, thought you probably could milk an ant. Yeah. Um, I, I, on balance, I also thought that. Uh, thank you for clarifying that, Adam. No problem. <laughs> Enjoy milking your ants. <laughs> thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye now. <laughs>